Years ago, I remember talking with a high school student, and he was, he was kind of frustrated because what he had been learning in science class wasn't fitting in with what he had read in the Bible. And he said, you know, in science class, all I hear is about the Big Bang and the Big Bang and the Big Bang. And I, and I said to him, well, if there was a Big Bang, you still have to ask, who pulled the trigger? And a big smile spread across his face. And he began to think about how, you know, maybe the Bible and science are not enemies after all. Um, today we start a three-Sunday series called Wrestling with the Book. And by the book, I, of course, mean the book, the B-I-B-L-E. And it is a book that we do have to wrestle with when we read it. We, we, we sometimes struggle, Lord, what are you talking about? What does this mean? How does this fit in? But the Bible is a book that is worth wrestling with. And I'm doing this series for two reasons uh, and for two kinds of audiences. First, I'm doing it especially for you young people who, uh, like my high school friend years ago, I mean, you, you're facing challenges from friends and from faculty, and I want to, at least in an introductory way, prepare you for those kinds of challenges. And the second reason is that I'm doing this uh, because all of us know people. Friends, family, others who believe that the Bible is basically for idiots. And I want to prepare you to, to have com intelligent conversations with them. So take notes, okay? Anyway, next Sunday in our series, uh, we'll address the question, aren't the Bible manuscripts full of copy errors? Now, this may be something you've really never thought about before, uh, but uh, if you're not gone over Labor Day weekend next weekend, I hope you'll be here because this is a fascinating question, and I believe you're going to learn some stuff. Uh, on the next Sunday, on September 8th, we'll take on the question, can the Bible be read in a way that is authoritative? And if so, what is that way? How is the Bible meant to be read? And today's question is this. Can, how can science and the Bible be compatible? Or can they? And this question is important because for so long, science and the Bible have been pitted against each other. Uh, for some scientists, faith seems like believing in stuff for which there's absolutely no evidence. For some Christians, scientists appear biased toward debunking the entire Bible. Let me begin by setting the stage. During the Middle Ages, from 500 to 1500 A.D., uh, education was really on the decline in Europe, okay? But it was the monasteries that preserved learning. They were the, the, the bastions of, of learning during those times in Europe. It was in a monastery that the first mechanical clock was constructed. And they did that because they wanted to be very regular and punctual about their prayer times. And it was in a monastery that the first eyeglasses were crafted so that they could continue to read the scriptures. You know, many of the um, early champions of science 
were also devoted Christians. Did you know that? Uh, in the 1200s, this guy, Roger Bacon, championed empiricism, the scientific method, and the idea of the laws of nature. In the 1500s, Copernicus uh, discovered that the earth and the planets revolved around the sun. In 1600s, uh, Blaise Pascal was a pioneer in math and physics. And also in the 1600s, Isaac Newton laid down laws of physics that would stand for centuries. And those are just a few, few of the many names of early Christian scientists. And you might say, well, yeah, but wasn't everyone in Europe back then a Christian? So... They were just happened to be Christians, but they were really scientists. Well, for the most part, I would say, yeah, most people back then would consider themselves Christians. But my question would be this. Why did, did science make such strides in that kind of culture, in a Christian-based culture? Uh, historians have noted that science was born in the cradle of Christianity because of its belief in a rational, orderly God who created the cosmos. So they expected that their study of the natural world would reveal order and rationality. Now, of course, historians can also point out the church's resistance to many findings of science, and they would be right. Christians have often not been humble enough or curious enough about the discoveries of science, right? You can, you can look at a lot of church history and find this. We've not been humble enough or curious enough when it comes to the findings of science. And yet others have been. They've remained humble and curious. Nearly a century ago, a Catholic priest from Belgium named Georges Lemaitre was the first to observe that the universe is actually expanding. And even now, I mean, they tell us, and they've proved it in many other ways, findings that the universe is expanding. Uh, and, and he proposed then, if it's expanding now, that it must have had a beginning point, what we now call the Big Bang. Uh, in our time, it was Francis Collins. He was the head of the Human Genome Project, this massive project of unraveling the human DNA. He was not raised in the Christian faith, but he became a Christian as a young adult, follower of Jesus, and he has since founded an organization called BioLogos, which encourages those studying God and those studying science to explore together. Let's open our Bibles now to the passage that Brian read for us, uh, Psalm 19. In the Pew Bible, it starts on page 545. And you ask, well, why did I choose this psalm? I chose this psalm because it points to the study of both God's world and God's Word. It points to the study of both God's world and God's Word. Both are important. So, um, I, I need to uh, open that here myself because... Okay. All right, so verse 1. Will you, will you say it out loud with me? We're going to look at three... Three different verses from this, and we'll say each one of them aloud together. Let's say verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. 
So the sun and the moon, the stars and the planets possess a glory. And when we look up at them, they get us thinking about God. And you know, that's still true today. Scientists tell us that the universe appears to be finely tuned for life. And that raises the possibility for us of God, doesn't it? For example, I talked about how the universe is expanding. Well, it's expanding at a certain rate, a very specific rate. Uh, Cosmologists tell us that if the rate of expansion from the Big Bang had been smaller by even um, one part in one hundred thousand million million, which is a, a, a one with 17 zeros, the universe would have collapsed before it ever reached its present size. That's a quote from Stephen Hawking. And if the rate of expansion had been greater or faster uh, by even one part in a million, then stars and planets would have never come together. Nothing, matter would never have coalesced. And Francis Collins says there are 14 more constants like this one, things like the speed of light and the force of gravity and others. And each one of these 15 laws of the universe is finely tuned for a stable universe capable of sustaining life. Collins notes, the existence of the universe as we know it rests upon a knife edge of improbability. The existence of the universe as we know it rests upon a knife edge of improbability. So what do we say about this improbable universe of ours? We could say, wow, we sure are lucky. (laughs) Or we could say, well, but maybe there's an infinite number of universes out there and ours just was one of the few that can sustain life. You know, that's a common theory, especially in sci-fi stories. But it's never, there's absolutely no evidence for it. Or we could say that the universe we live in points to the possibility of God. Verse 4. Will you you say verse 4 with me? Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. The universe is speaking to whoever is listening. And then in verse 7, the psalm takes a shift from talking about how God is revealed in the world to how God is revealed in His Word. Let's read verse 7 together. It starts at the bottom of the page and then finishes on the next. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul, The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. So the universe may point us to God, but then we, but from the universe we know very little about this God, do we? I mean, there's we know we know very little about the character of God. So to know God, to know who God is, to know why we are here, we need a special kind of revelation, and that's the kind of revelation that we find in the Bible. So how does that work? How how did the words of the Bible 
first come to the authors. Now, now you may wish that the Bible had been dictated by the voice of God directly to someone who was listening and then writing fast and furious word for word. But that's not the Bible we have, and that's not what the Bible claims. The Bible's documents were written by people, and, and God worked and inspired their minds, and yet the authors used their own vocabulary, and they used their own particular language. And they, they, they spoke from within their own particular culture and their own particular time. So here's my big thought of the day. God inspired what the Bible authors wrote, but God did not change their understanding of science. God inspired what the, what the Bible authors wrote, but God did not change their understanding of science in doing that because that wasn't his purpose to change their understanding of science. For example, uh, when I was in college, a friend of mine came up to me and said, Steve, I need your help. <laughs> My girlfriend just sent me this really nice card, and she signed her name, and at the bottom she put the Bible reference. So he said, I looked up at the, the Bible reference, Philippians 1.8, and, and here's what it says. I long after you in the bowels of Jesus Christ. <laughs> he said, what is that about? What's what she trying to say to me? Well, he was reading in a King James Version, and I said, let's try another translation. You know? And, and the translation we looked up said what most other translations say, I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. So not bowels, but affection. Okay? Now, now, I will tell you that the King James Version has the more literal translation here. Uh, ancient Near Eastern people uh, believe that uh, all of our human thoughts and emotions stemmed from this region of the body and the organs like the liver and the heart and the kidneys and the intestines. You know, the Bible doesn't even have a word for brain. But you see, that didn't matter. God inspired the Bible authors and what they wrote, but God did not find a need to change their understanding of science. God didn't think it was, it was really that important to correct their understanding of the functions of human anatomy. Fortunately for us, our Bible translators help us to understand what was really meant by Paul in Philippians 1.8, and that in this context, bowels do represent affection. And that's why God did not say to the writer of Genesis, uh, writing about creation, now before I tell you about the, uh, the, how the universe began, let me give you a lesson on the relationship between matter and energy. Let's start with E equals MC squared. God didn't do that because that wasn't his purpose. When I, when I was young, I read Genesis 1, the Bible's account of creation, and I just figured, hey, that's the way God did it. You know, day one, two, three, six 24-hour days. Why not? God can do anything. I got a little older and I figured, well, maybe, maybe, some of those, maybe those days were really long periods of time, like millions or billions of years. God can do anything. And, and now that I'm older still, I, I read Genesis 1 and I, and I, I see this, this poetic structure. I'm going, Wow. In days one, two, and three, um, 
God creates the habitats, the sky, and the seas, and the land. The sky and the seas and the land. And in days 4, 5, and 6, God creates the things that reside in those habitats. The sun, the moon, and the stars, and the birds, and the fish, and sea creatures, and, and the livestock, and wild animals, and crawling creatures, and humans. And this poetic structure makes me wonder what kind of literature is this? What was it meant to convey? Science or something else? I know a few of you have been to the Creation Museum and the Noah's Ark Encounter in Kentucky. I hear it is spectacular. And, and they will build a case that the, that the earth is six to 10,000 years old, and they can have some arguments for that. And, uh, and, and if, if that's, you know, kind of where your belief is, I totally respect that. You know, recently, uh, I, I become a fan of Dr. John Walton, who's a professor of Old Testament at Wheaton College. Uh, he says that in Genesis 1, we have an origins story. And, of course, we know that. Genesis 1 is an origin story. He says, what we have to ask then is, what kind of origins story is this? What kind of origins story? And let me answer by personalizing one of Walton's analogies. Let's, let's say you were a guest in our home and, and uh, you, were to, you were to say, hey, tell us the story of your home. And we could say, well, it's a ranch style built in 2004 with three bathrooms, two car garage, pressed wood siding, and asphalt shingles. But that's the story of our house. And what you really wanted to know was the story of what makes it our home. And that's very different. If I were giving you a tour, I'd tell you how, you know, a couple of years after we were in our house, Trish decided that, you know, that piano was just not doing anything sitting in this basement room where we forgot about it. So she hired piano movers to come and bring this 100-year-old super heavy upright into a room in our uh, upstairs had had been a bedroom for the people before us and we and she made it into a music room with all of our instruments and everything there and we love it and and I tell you how we turned another bedroom upstairs bedroom into an office and that's where I do most of my sermon prep and I tell you how I bought Trisha a large photo of two sandhill cranes silhouetted against an orange sky which is now framed and hanging in our family room. And those are the stories you'd want to hear. As our friends, you wouldn't be as interested in the building specs of the house. What would be more meaningful and more per personal and more important is the story of making it our home. And so John Walton asks, what kind of origins story do we have in Genesis? Is it a house story or is it a home story? Is it a story of materials and measurements or is it a story of a loving creator who tailored it for us so that he could be in relationship with us? God spoke to an ancient Israelite 
through an ancient Israelite to other ancient Israelites and gave them the most important kind of origins story, a home story. And that's the story I would propose that we have in Genesis 1. And if Genesis 1 is a home story, and if it's not a house story about materials and measurements, then I think that we can be open to all, a lot of kinds of, op, of possibilities as to when and how God created this world and the life that we find within it. God inspired what the Bible authors wrote, but God did not change their understanding of science to do it. What about, what about Genesis 2? Because that's where we meet Adam and Eve, right? Well, Adam, but, but Eve doesn't get a name until chapter 3, but she's in there. And, and, and most of us Christians have assumed that, that Genesis claims that, that they were the mother and father of the entire human race. But what if... Genesis 1 happens before Genesis 2. Could it be saying in Genesis 1 where it says that God made humans in his image, male and female, so that there's already a population of them before we get to Genesis 2 with Adam and Eve? Now, I'm, some of you are just going, oh my goodness, I have never thought of that before. But it would be a fair reading of the Bible, wouldn't it? And if there already were a population of humans before Adam and Eve, that would make it easier to actually understand some things in the Bible, like where their son Cain got his wife and why it says that Cain built a city. I mean, like for who? And if, 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 if in the beginning God created a population of humans, that just happens to fit what science tells us. That the human species began not with a pair of individuals, but with a population, with genetic diversity. Now, were Adam and Eve historic individuals? I've always thought so, and I still want to say so. But it's clear that the Bible portrays them as more than individuals, that they are representatives of the human race. That's why Adam is given the name that just means man. Did you know that in the Hebrew, Adam? It just means man. And sometimes it's used that way. It's just generic, generic man. Sometimes it's referred to that name in, for him. And it's sometimes hard to know which is which uh, with, this, with this in Genesis 2 and 3. Um, and the same with Eve. Her name is just kind of a generic word that means living or to give life just because she's a mother, you know. And by using these names, the author is giving us clues that he's painting a story with a very broad brush. And why do we keep going back to the story of Adam and Eve? Because it's our story. The story of temptation versus trusting is our story. We go back to Genesis because it tells us who we are. I'm not saying that the things in Genesis 2 and 3 didn't happen. But they happen 
in a way that's still happening. Years ago, Carl Sagan opened his TV show Cosmos, and of course it's been revived now as we know. But he opened his, his TV show Cosmos by saying, the cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. Do you remember that, some of you? He said, the cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. In saying that, Sagan spoke not as a scientist, but as a philosopher. He was speculating beyond truth of what science can observe and prove. And that's why I think it is important for all of us, scientists and Christians, and scientists who are Christians, all of us, to remain humble and curious. And if we can remain humble and curious, we just might find that all truth is God's truth. We just might find that all truth is God's truth wherever it comes from. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, what an awesome world and universe you have made. We are we are still just scratching the surface and exploring what is there and what it's like. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this, this gift you have given us. We ask that you will help us to care for it, to be good stewards of it, Lord. Give us the courage to, to uh, represent you and your care for this planet. And, Lord, we pray that you will give us wisdom as we seek to wrestle with these big, deep questions Lord, we want to be able to learn from your world and your word in our search for truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, before we get into the, the next song, I want to say a little bit about it. The title of the song is, It Is You. And there's just one little phrase in here which is a, it was captured from Psalm, the beginning of Psalm 19 where it says, The heavens declare... And uh, so, uh, as we sing this song, I want you to think about how the earth and creation and, and the, even the whole universe is declaring something about God. And as we reflect on that, we can turn and say to God, it is you. Let's stand.